Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Monday, March the 20th, 2023. On this edition of The Politocrat, a civics lesson and a lesson for those of us who are more interested in voting than sniping on social media. I'll be explaining what I mean by that. Plus, disrespect shown in the White House press briefing room to the White House press secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, and press colleagues. I'll play the audio of that as well, coming up next. Dear listener, welcome to this brand new edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast. Omar Moore here. It is Monday and it is spring. Welcome to spring. Yes, my goodness me. It may not feel like spring, perhaps where you are, dear listener, but I can assure you that it is spring. And we have finally got to that point after a long, long, long winter full of all that climate change and global warming can give you. Rain. Snow, heavy winds, heavy rains, and in some places, temperatures that are ungodly for wintertime. I do hope that you have survived the winter, dear listener, and I do hope that you and yours are intact and are at least moving through the gears here on this Monday. And if you're not, I do hope that things work out better for you tomorrow. But I, for one, am glad that it is spring. Oh, gosh. Spring is a godsend. I certainly hope that your spring turns out to be a good one overall. So I can tell you that, you know, it's good to get to a new season. Hopefully there's new possibilities for you, dear listener, as we go through here, as we start spring on this March 20th. First of all, happy birthday to... Sister Rosetta Tharp, she, the inventor of rock and roll, the innovator of rock and roll, um, yesterday would be her birthday. And I want to repeat that. She is the inventor, the innovator of rock and roll. She influenced so many people. I've spoken about Sister Rosetta Tharp before. She pioneered the steel guitar and numerous other things, and she really was the leader. Back in the early 1900s, she started performing at the age of four. Sister Rosetta Tharp, happy birthday to you. Man, we really, I got to tell you, I miss, I miss her. And the thing is, is that she had a relatively short life. I think she was only 57 when she passed away. And, and um, her music, you can go look on YouTube and listen to some of the tunes. Type in her name, Sister Rosetta, that's R-O-double, I'm sorry, R-O-1-S-E-double-T-A. And then her last name is Tharp, T-H-A-R-P. P as in pronto, E as in excellent, which is certainly what she was. Sister Rosetta Tharp, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday also to Spike Lee, the filmmaker, of course, um, who has directed many, many good films, including Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, Black Klansman, for which he won an Academy Award in 2019, Four Little Girls, the documentary feature that I think is one of his very best, as well as 
If God is Willing and The Creek Don't Rise, another documentary from him, uh, among others. He's done so many great works over the years, Spike, including Inside Man, The 25th Hour, and Crooklyn, among many others. So happy birthday to Spike Lee. I'm sure there are other birthdays, and if your birthday is today, happy birthday to you as well, dear listener. Here on this Monday, March the 20th, 2023. Well, there's a few things I want to get to today on this episode. One of them is what happened today in the White House press briefing room. I'll do that a bit later. I'm not going to start with that first. The White House press briefing room. I thought what happened there today was an absolute disgrace. I'll get into that a bit later. I'll play the audio. So you've got that one to come. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about, at least one or two other things to talk about, is about social media and how it's being used. I mean, we all know how social media is being used. If you've been on social media for as much as, what, three minutes, you know, uh, depending on the platform you're on, you know what's going on and, and, and how it's being used by some people. How do you use social media? That's one thing I want to get into, but really want to get into the kind of bullcrap that we have to stop and when I'm saying we in this instance, I'm referring to we as black people. We have got to stop this nonsense that I've been seeing on social media. And you're going to see more of this as we get closer and closer to the 2024 election here in the United States. You're going to see more of this. I'm not going to play the clip or the audio or anything. I'm going to describe parts of it. And then I'm going to make a point that I've already um, that's going to be on social media that I've already made. And I, I just this is the kind of thing that will be done to calculatedly divide as we get closer and closer to the presidential election of 2024. And it's already happening. So I want to get to that as well. But first, I want to get to something that's even more, well, as important, if not more so, I'd say, which is civics. I think it's a good time for us to have a civics lesson, you and I. And I did say that this year I would start to do a lot more of this so civics here in the United States. Now, look, civics is not being taught very much at all these days in schools here in the United States. And it's something that really needs to be taught. It really does. Now we're getting history being whitewashed. We're getting Rosa Parks. And I'll talk about Rosa Parks in another episode. Um, how Rosa Parks now is being written out of history or at least being threatened to be hit, written out of history. This bill was introduced uh, in Florida, Florida, isn't that such a fantastic state for doing all this when in, I mean, Florida, one of the most dangerously backward states, but also also one of the most fascist states, which means they're also going backwards in that regard, too. So it's not even a question of but I just want to say, dear listen, I'll be talking about what's going on with Florida and Rosa Parks. I, I think it's just despicable. And again, I'm going to keep close tabs on these things. And so that's something I will be telling you about later on this week. But I do want to talk civics first, dear listener. And civics, again, not taught really this that much at all in schools anymore in the United States. But I'm going to teach you a little bit to, today in this episode. Because, to you know, to, to just think about civics. It's the basics. Here in the United States, you have 50 states. 48 of them contiguous. That means all together. We have two states that are not attached. They are separate. Alaska, for example, is separate. Alaskans look at 
the U.S., the contiguous states, as the, quote, lower 48, because Alaska is north, if not northwest, of the 48 contiguous states. And then you've got also Hawaii. Now, Hawaii also is by itself and one of the non-contiguous states. It's, I think, one of the younger states in the Union. I think it came back in the 1950s, 1957 or something like that. So you've got those two states and you've got the other 48, the lower 48, as Alaskans like to say. And in every single state, we have a governor. And that governor also has a state legislature. So everyone in all of these states has a state legislature. Now, to the best of my knowledge, that does include Alaska and Hawaii. And the state legislatures in this country, if you look at them, most of them, I'd say 26 or 27 of the 20, excuse me, 26 or 27 of the 50 states are controlled by Republican state legislatures. Despite the fact that there are more registered Democratic voters than there are registered Republican voters. In fact, by a considerable number, by at least I would say a few million, a few million. It is what in those 26 out of 50 Republican uh, controlled, I mean, it's out of those 26 of those 50 state legislatures that are controlled by Republicans. That is a key number. Because that means that Republicans control most of the state houses in this country, state legislatures. They are also more Republican governors in this country than there are democratic governors. So that's the lay of the land when it comes to the states. When it comes to the states. And their legislatures. They have a house and they have a senate. Now the same thing in terms of legislatures goes with the federal government. The federal government of the United States of America consists of Three different branches of government. The executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. The executive branch of government on the federal level would be the White House. The White House. The executive in the White House would be the president. He or she or they is the chief executive in that way. The commander in chief is the better way to say that. Now, of course, in the executive, you've got the vice president as well. You've got the White House chief of staff. And then you go down the line, White House press secretary. You've got the vice president's office as well, and, you know, the back, you know, the deputies underneath the vice president, you know, you've got the executive branch. And of course, the executive branch appoints, or at least selects, nominees to the judicial bench. Now, there are appointments to a cabinet, which what the president does is appoint a cabinet. Department of Agriculture, Department of the Interior, Department of Housing and Urban Development, Department of Education, 
Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Defense, Homeland Security, Secretary, you get the idea, right? That's how this works. That's the executive branch. Of course, included in that too would be the Justice Department. That's the executive branch. I want to get now to the legislative branch. That would be the United States Congress. You have what's called a bicameral legislature. Bicameral means two houses. One of the houses is the House of Representatives. And the other house is the United States Senate. Now, the House of Representatives consists of 435 representatives. It might be 434, but usually 435, 434, 434 or 435 House members. Those House members are members of a number of districts, maybe two, maybe three, in their state that they represent. So let's say, for example, off the top of my head, I can just think about which district she's in. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, Representative AOC. She has several districts that she is representing. One in Queens, I don't remember the exact one. One in the Bronx, might be the South Bronx. And one also, I think, in part of Manhattan. Something like that. She has these districts that she represents. and Sometimes they're kind of very amorphous. But the bottom line is, is that that's what you have in the House. Now, in the Senate, you have a total of 100 senators. And those 100 senators represent a whole state. They don't represent districts of a state. They represent the entire state. And there are two senators for every state. If I can remember that correctly, two senators in every state. Now, there's been a lot of complaints, and I've been one of those complaining about the fact that there are some states who only have, say, two million people in their population. Or less than a million people in their population, and they still have two senators, whereas California here, where we have over roughly about 40 million, four zero million people, 40 million people. And we have the same amount of senators as, say, Rhode Island does or, say, Wyoming does. And their populations are a fraction of ours. And there really needs to be a third senator here in California. But that's not happened. It's not happened yet anyway. So each state has two senators. So 50 states, two senators each. You get the idea. You do the math. It's 100 senators. Two for each state. Now I'll get back in a few moments time to what these branches of government do. But let me finish with the judicial branch. That's the third branch of the federal government here in the United States. The judicial branch, of course, is the judiciary, the judges, the courts, 
And that would be, in this case, the United States Supreme Court. But there's also federal courts, the district courts, circuit courts. That's part of the federal judicial system. And the judiciary, of course, would be, as I said, the United States Supreme Court, which has presently nine justices on it. Eight associate judges, I should say eight associate justices and one chief justice. At present, the composition of the United States Supreme Court is six Republican fascists and three Democrats. As you know by now, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court is John Roberts. The judiciary interprets the law. That's what the judiciary does and hands down its decision based on its interpretation. Some of us would say based on politics, based on activism, based on judicial activism. And that term is thrown around and it can go both ways. But that is what the judiciary does, interprets the law. And of course, the United States Supreme Court has made some very consequential decisions over the last few generations, ever since it was hatched into existence. Some decisions, not bad, pretty good ones. A lot of decisions, not for the better at all, much for the worst. When I come back, dear listener, I'm going to talk a bit more about these three houses of the United States government and a couple of other things, observation-wise, about government and how it works in the United States. That's next. No welcome back. So I want to just talk a bit more about the branches of government that I talked about before the break. And the three branches of government, the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch, that's in the federal level here in the United States. I've talked about those three, those three branches. And I'm going to get specifically more into the legislature and the legislative branch of government. I just wanted to say very quickly that first, each of these branches has their own power. Now, there have been debates for a number of generations, really, on which of these three branches of the federal government is the most powerful. Some say the judiciary. Some say the executive and some say the legislature. Well, it's a difficult call to make. I think if I were to say now in 2023, which of those three branches of the federal government here in the United States is the most powerful, I would say the judicial branch. Some might say the legislative branch. I'll say the judicial. I'll tell you why I say the judicial branch. I say the judicial branch, dear listener, because you have unelected unelected people making decisions that 
affect not just your lives, but literally the lives of at least two, if not three generations of people. And they are unelected. Unlike the other two branches of government where you have the executive, the chief executive or the commander in chief is elected as is the vice president. Now the president gets to pick the cabinet and those cabinet members are not elected but the president is elected as is the vice president. Both of them are elected to those positions. Now the same thing goes of course for the legislative branch. Congress, the House and the Senate, they're both comprised of individuals, officials who are elected into that office by we the people. But the judicial branch is the only branch of the three where the officials making the decisions that affect your lives and my life and the lives of generations to come are not elected. They are appointed. They are voted on by the legislative branch. Now, you could say the legislative branch has all the power all the time. But the judiciary acts as a check. There's something called the separation of powers. And there is this doctrine that says that one branch cannot hold undue influence or power over another branch. And so there's these checks of you know, upon these branches by the other. You've got Congress checking the branch of the executive because, of course, the legislative branch, which is Congress, um, has to keep the executive branch in check. For example, the president may select nominees for whichever judgeship that that president chooses to, but... If that judge is an extremist, and of course we've had a number of those on the Supreme Court lately, but if that judge is an extremist, it's the job of Congress to uh, drill down and make sure that, or to the best of their abilities, make sure that this person is not going to be a nightmare. Now, we've had a few nightmares on the Supreme Court, haven't we, um, over the last few years? And the bo- the bottom line here is is that the way to check on the power of the judiciary is to, when you have a prospective nominee to the United States Supreme Court who has been selected by the president, is to have Congress, specifically the Senate, question those nominees. And we saw that, of course, last year with the now Supreme Court Associate Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. You remember that she was grilled by some of these Republicans. Remember the disgusting stuff that Lindsey Graham did to her in a hearing almost a year ago now. It was in April of last year, or maybe March of last year. It was a year ago. And Lindsey Graham behaved like a disgusting, the disgusting cretin that he is. So that is what the role, you know, the role of the legislative branch is to question the nominees set forth by the president. There's a hearing in the Senate building, Senate office buildings there on Capitol Hill and the job of the senators on the Judiciary Committee, because each of these places has committees, is to ask questions of the nominee who has been appointed to or been selected as a nominee to the bench. That's how that works in a hearing. 
So there's rules and responsibilities. I've laid all that out for you, dear, dear listener, but I want to get now to something a bit more fine-tuned. You know a bit about the legislative, you know a little bit about the judiciary, you know a little bit about the executive. The executive, of course, with the president, he or she or they can sign executive orders. There's an unlimited amount of them that can be done. So, and the vice president plays a pivotal role because, you know, the vice president is the president of president, excuse me, of the Senate. So if she, in this case, Kamala Harris, um, has to break a tie, she will be called in to do so, to break a tie in the Senate. She's had to do that, I think, about five times so far in her vice presidency, to the best of my knowledge and my memory, which can be a little bit dodgy sometimes, but there you go. What I want to do is focus a bit more, though, dear listener, on the legislative branch and how a bill becomes law. If you want to wonder why and how certain things become law, how any bill becomes law, well, you know, all bills aren't written on paper to begin with. They are written in your mind because you have to think of some kind of issue that you would like to see voted on as a bill. Now, usually what happens is, let's say I have an idea. I want oranges to be the national fruit of the United States. I don't know what, if there is such a thing. I don't think there is such a thing as a national fruit of the United States. But let's say that there was. And let's say, um, with, with apologies to Florida, well, <laughs> not too many apologies. Um, but with apologies to Florida, what if I said that oranges should be the national fruit of the United States? Or what if I said that the stars and stripes, the stars on the stars and stripes, the American flag will be replaced with orange, an orange, instead of 50 white stars representing each of the 50 states. So let's say I did that, right? Let's say that or the orange is a national fruit of the United States. That's an idea. You can call it a silly idea or a pretty damn good idea, whatever you choose. Now, I need someone to do what is called co-sponsor my idea, my bill. And so once that co-sponsoring comes, the bill is laid out, you write that bill out and you lay it out, you get the co-sponsor, they're co-sponsoring it, boom. And then what happens to it? Let's say my bill is a bill to make oranges the national fruit of the United States of America. So let's say I, I, I did that, got a co-sponsor, someone else in the House of Representatives to co-sponsor the bill, which means sign on to the bill, support the bill. And then it has to then go to something called committee. Committee. And what committee is, what the committee is, is a group of people in the House of Representatives, usually from both political parties, Democratic and Republican, and depending on who is in power in the House of Representatives, the committee will have one more or two more of that political party on it than the other political party. So you may have, for example, in the House, I know it's controlled by Republicans, but let's just say it was controlled by Democrats still. So you would have on this committee typically nine Democrats and eight Republicans or something along those lines. 
That's what you typically have. Ten Democrats and seven Republicans, let's say. And that committee gets to discuss the bill. They have a copy of the bill. A bill to make oranges the national fruit of the United States. So the bill is brought into committee and it gets discussed and everyone has a little debate around the table about the bill. And the committee takes a vote. And whether or not the bill makes it out of committee is a massive thing. If the bill makes it out of committee, there is a chance that it might get voted on by the full house, which is most likely going to be the case if that happens. Now, if the bill doesn't make it out of committee, that bill is dead. It's over. No way back. You have to go back to the drawing board and come up with something different. That's how it works. And so let's say that for a sake of, sake of argument, dear listener, the bill did make it out of committee. It was voted on. Let's say the bill vote was all on party lines. Ten Democrats in my hypothetical, seven Republicans. Then what you do is you, you would then have an agenda to table the bill, bring it up for another t- uh, for a full vote. And then, depending on the success or failure of that, hey, you've got something that potentially becomes law. Because if that bill comes in and it's voted on by a X amount of a majority, and it could be a different kind of majority depending upon where you might sit. But in terms of in Congress... If that bill is voted on by the full house, 534, 434 members or 435 members, then you have a chance for that bill to succeed. And if that bill does pass, then it goes where? To the president's desk, the executive's desk. The executive signs it and then it becomes law as soon as the president finishes the strokes of his pen on the paper. That bill is now Law. That's how it works, dear listener. That's how a bill becomes law. Now, you could just watch Schoolhouse Rock and have a more entertaining edition of what I just told you. But this is all from memory off the top of my head. It's not really that difficult to remember, but it's all off the top of my head. What I've just told you the last roughly 10 minutes or so, 12 minutes or so. So that is how a bill becomes law. Now, again... Um, the process of that is a lot of amendments in the negotiation phase after it goes out of committee and then goes to the floor of the House to be voted on. There could be all kinds of debates, all kinds of dialogues, all kinds of things added or subtracted or whatever, and da-da-da-da-da-da. But the most important thing, other than the things I've said in the last few minutes, is to remember that also the Senate votes on the bill as well. So if the House has passed the bill, the bill, the bill is not law yet. I should make that very clear. The bill then gets sent over to the Senate side of the building where the senators are housed. And they have to then vote on the bill. And maybe there have been some adjustments made to the bill by this time. But the point is, is that the Senate has to then vote on the bill as well because that's how this happens, bicameral legislature. Two houses, so you have the House vote on the bill. Now the Senate votes on it. And 
if the bill passes there, then it will become an official law. If the bill does not pass there, it won't become law. And also, the bill will be dead on arrival. It would be dead. It could be dead in committee. It could be dead on the fact that it's a straight line vote. It could be dead on a number of different ways and a different reason. So that's how all of that works, dear listener, in terms of dealing with the legislature. Legislature is very important. I don't know that it has all the power, but it's pretty darn close. Pretty darn close. But I think the judiciary does, dear listener. That's how this goes where civics is concerned. That's the first portion of civics. And knowing about how a bill becomes law, I think, is very important. Very important. It's not as complicated as some might have you believe. Dear listener, when I come back, I've got to talk about what happened inside the White House press briefing room today. Dear listener, welcome back. And I hope you are having a good Monday. Now, look, I wanted to talk now, and I'll get to specifics again um, along the way here. Not in this episode again, but down the road, not too long from now, because I think it's really important for us to really be clear about what civics is, what it means here in the United States, and to identify the ingredients of it and what the structure of government looks like and how it's how it operates. And I think I, in a rather condensed, I guess, um, nutshell, uh, explained what and how those branches function. And, you know, I, I did give you a little sense of that. I'll go into it in more depth, I think, or a, li- a little bit more, I think, in the coming days. But I wanted to just give you a flavor, if you will, of how those three, three T-H-R-E-E, not F-R-E-E, those three bar- branches of government work. Um, but I want to talk now about two other things. First of all, What happened in the press briefing room earlier today in the White House press briefing room was despicable. And I'm going to play the audio of it. There's two different sections of it. Um, Jason Sudeikis, who plays Ted Lasso, the football coach, football meaning the football you play with your feet, not the football you play with your hands. That's the football, of course, called the NFL. The football you play with your feet is what a lot of people in the United States call soccer, which is just nonsense because it's football. But anyway... There's a whole commercial around it with Doritos or Tostitos commercial with uh, David Beckham and Peyton Manning. Oh, dear. Anyway, but look, the bottom line, dear listen, that's not the really key thing here. The The thing is, is that Ted Lasso, a.k.a. Jason Sudeikis, I should really say, a.k.a. Ted Lasso, um, and a few people from the cast with him came along to the White House press briefing room to talk about mental health. I don't have the time to play you the clip that... Um, Jason Sudeikis um, did when he was talking about it. Maybe I'll do that some other time this week. But right now, I want to just focus on the issue that I want to present. During the time that Jason Sudeikis was about to speak, or at least while Corinne Jean-Pierre, the only black female press secretary who was hired permanently for that job, um, during the time she was speaking... You will hear and you 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 will uh, look, I don't want to really spoil this, but you will hear a journalist, a reporter named Simon Atiba, who has done this over and over again over the last few weeks and months, interrupt, shout, try to bully the press secretary. It's despicable. 
And I'm going to play the two clips now. I'm going to play first the clip um, when Jason Sudeikis was up there, or, or rather when the uh, press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, was up there. And then I'm going to play you a second clip after that as well. Corinne Jean-Pierre, um, again, is the only black female secretary for the White House press secretary. She's the White House press secretary, the only one who was hired full-time straight off as a permanent um, others got into that role because whatever, da 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 But if I'm not mistaken, she's the only black female press secretary who has ever been just brought straight into that position. She was deputy, though, so I shouldn't really say she was deputy press secretary at one point. She did two or three briefings when Jen Psaki, who now has a show on MSNBC, oh dear. Um, and I think that Karine Jean-Pierre is much better at this job than her predecessor was, and several predecessors. I mean, geez, the bar is set at a certain low, but the point is is that Corinne Jean-Pierre is very good at what she does. And I want you to listen to this, because I think it sounds a lot worse listening to it than it does actually watching it on television or on your iPad or your iPhone. You need to listen to this. You will hear Simon Atiba, and I forget which publication he's from. He's, an Afri- he's a black man. Um... And you will listen. You you will listen to him. It's really unpleasant. I think not unpleasant in a way that makes you throw up, but it's unpleasant how rude he is. Here now are those two clips. This is what happened today in the White House press briefing room. I wonder why so many people are here today. Yeah, right. You're right. You're here for me. Refer me. No, 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 no. No, that's not. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. You've been discriminating against me and discriminating against some people in the briefing room. And I'm saying that this is the U.S. This is not China. This is not Russia. This is not Russia. Okay. What you are doing, you are making a mockery of the first amendment. It's been seven months. You've not called on me. You've not got my message I'm saying that that's not right. That's not right. On times. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Welcome to the press briefing room. Okay. This is not right. Sir, let it go. Are we ready? Are we going to behave? While many folks... Decorum, please. Simon. Sorry to our guests. We apologize. Yes, I apologize. I apologize. Okay, while many... While many folks here in U.S. are focused on March Madness or the World Baseball Classic, Go Team USA tomorrow night, by the way, we at the White House today are going to focus on another sport, which is soccer. Okay. I just got to say something before we start. I know some folks are probably going to leave the room. Um, Make sure. You can't keep discriminating against some people in the briefing room because you don't like them, you don't like them. So you have a choice. No, you, you have a choice. You have a choice. Okay. And I'm saying that that's not right. This is not China. This is not Russia. This is the United States. This is the White House. 
White House. He signed seven months. I sent you seven months. The rest of us are here too, pal. He is the seven months. If you have grievances, you should bring them to her later. I have done that. I have done that. All my emails have been ignored. And the press corps is tired of dealing with this. It is not useless. I understand that you get questions all the time and you don't understand what it is to sit here for eight months and be discriminated against. I understand that you're in the front row and you feel comfortable. And you get questions all the time. There are people in the back who don't get any questions. Don't make assumptions about what the rest of us do. Mind your manners when you're in here. If you have a problem, you bring it up afterwards. But you are impinging on everybody in here who's only trying to do their job. Okay, thank you. I'm saying that you shouldn't discriminate against some people because you don't agree with their questions. You're offended by your all right guys as you all know many of you know this is the white house press briefing room a historic room a room that should have decorum a room where folks should respect their colleagues and respect the guests that are here and i understand that there's going to be give and take that's the way the press briefing has gone for for decades before me and I will always, always respect that. But what I will not, what I will not appreciate is disrespecting your colleagues and disrespecting guests who are here to talk, who were here to talk about an incredibly important issue, which is mental health. And what has just occurred this last 10, 15 minutes is unacceptable. It's it, it is unacceptable. So we're, gonna, so we're either going to continue the briefing or we can just end the briefing right here. No. Okay, well then, let's go. Now for my next guest. Now those are the two clips, dear listener, and that is disgusting from Simon Atiba. By the way, he is the correspondent. He's a journalist, the White House journalist for Today News Africa. Oh, he needs to be yesterday's news when it comes to the White House press correspondence. He really needs to go. And I would hope that the White House does ban him from future press briefings. I found that painful to listen to. You have a black man behaving like a complete bore, disrespectful, misogynoirist, rude and disrespectful. Narcissistic, self-absorbed, selfish. And you have a black woman, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary. And I don't know how she didn't absolutely blow a gasket during the course of those two clips. It was so rude. You heard the clips. And again, if you see this in person, it's still bad and awful but listening to it without benefit of the pictures and it's much worse it's much worse it's cringe it's disturbing it's embarrassing it's disgraceful it's disrespectful and he wouldn't have done it had it been a white male or a white female press secretary standing in front of him he would have just sucked it up and shut the hell up And that's disgusting what he did to Corinne Jean-Pierre in those two clips. 
And Corrine Jean-Pierre, to her credit, as the White House press secretary, held her own and I think did the right thing. The way that she handled that was very, very good. I also thought it was good that, and I didn't play that, that clip here, that Zeke Miller, who is the head, I think, of the White House press correspondence now, and is from the Associated Press, he usually gets the first question. He usually gets called on to uh, to ask the first question. It was great to hear him apologize. Now, you didn't hear it in the clips because I didn't play that particular clip. But it was great to hear him say to Corinne Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, you know, I apologize on behalf of everyone in the room. Um, I apologize. And then there were some people who seconded that. And I thought that was good. And it was also good, by the way, in that clip, that second clip that you heard, to hear the press also saying, look, decorum. Simon, behave yourself, sit down, whatever. You know, I thought that was also good as well. And you can tell that there are some press colleagues in there and it's it's the predominantly white press corps. And it was the vast majority of the voices I heard were white voices, white people saying, hey, look, you know, calm down, decorum. As you know, there was a bit of a a spat going on between Jeff Mason of Reuters, who's at the front, turning around and looking back at Simon Atiba, who again sits in the back row and he's complaining, oh, we don't get called on. It's so unprofessional of him to be doing that during the press conference. If you have an issue, and he may well have done this before and taken it up with the White House, but if you have an issue, you have to do it outside the White House press briefing room. Thank you very much. Outside it. Outside it. Not inside the press briefing room. Outside it. Outside. You can't have that happening. It's profoundly disrespectful and rude. And... It is conduct unbecoming of a journalist, so-called journalist. Because then you realize, you see later on, he's jumped on Tucker Carlson, hasn't he, on Fox. And he's there as Tucker's guest, or should I say, his pet. And you know where this guy, Simon Atiba, is coming from. And Simon Atiba doesn't realize or even care to realize that Tucker Carlson hates his guts. Tucker Carlson is an anti-black racist. So he now seeks refuge with these whites on the right. That's what Simon Atiba does. Now, I don't know what Simon Atiba's politics are, but I know that he shouldn't be anywhere near the White House press briefing room. And it was such a painful thing to watch and listen to that as you listen to it. I mean, that's exactly how it sounded. That's exactly how it was. That's exactly how it went down. And there needs to be more respect, respect from journalists to the White House press secretary and vice versa or in any walk of life. I mean, it's just really very poor form from Atiba. He needs to go. He needs to go. He's been doing this forever. Last week, I heard him shouting out. I watched these press conferences, these press briefings almost every every day, almost every day. And you hear him over and over again shouting and being rude. It's just, and I don't know why the White House hasn't got rid of him yet and said, you're banned. I don't know what the White House relationship with the publication is. I have no idea. But I should tell you, they should ditch that relationship. It is not a good look. It's not a good look. And what um, was happening in that clip, those two clips was nothing short of disgraceful.
Dear listener, welcome back. Finally, on this episode, I talked earlier about civics and made that the bulk of the episode on this edition of the Politicrat Daily Podcast, where you, by the way, are invited to think differently. And I want to end this episode on a similar vein. I want to talk a bit about voting. I'm not going to do that in great detail here in this last segment. I will in a future episode because I told you, dear listener, that I aim to do that this year is to talk a lot about next year, this year. Why postpone tomorrow what you can do today, which means why think about the year 2024 next year in terms of voting and elections when you can think about it and do something about it now in 2023? Why not? Now, one thing I noticed, dear listener, is that on social media, and you're going to begin to see this much more often as we get closer and closer to the 2024 presidential election here in the United States, you're going to notice all these things and they're going to make themselves really felt presence-wise. And one of the things I realized on social media is that you've got some black folk talking about, well, voting's not really working, it's not a good idea. That's one thing you're hearing. That's a bunch of bullcrap, by the way. Another thing you hear is in these TikTok videos where one black person is there and is talking negatively about other black people in the diaspora, other black people who, you know, they don't like because of this, that, or the other, and they just generalize about black folk, generalize, generalize. And again, it's just poor because it doesn't do you any favors at all. It's not a good look. And over and over and over again, you know, it's just, I don't know why people do this, but again, this is part, I think, of the orchestration now of, Sniping at other black people, having black people make these stupid TikTok videos. And TikTok is a massive distraction. I wouldn't go anywhere near that if you paid me. I wouldn't. And, you know, you've got people loving TikTok and this TikTok and that TikTok and hickory dickory dock and all the rest. And the thing is, is that these kinds of negative platforms, because that's what social media is. I mean, there's some areas to be positive in and there are. But for the most part, it's a toxic fest of absolute brutality, emotional brutality. I'm not exaggerating at all with my words. It's just absolutely dog's dinner. And so with that dog's dinner in mind, dear listener, it is important for us to focus on what matters, what is real. Not some stupid TikTok video, but actual action at the polls. Instead of the bullcrap I heard on TikTok today with someone talking, a black woman talking about, oh, well, you know, we can't really have that. We need to do this. We need to do that. We did the other. And the thing is, the thing that's rich crazy is, is that all this time that's being spent on some TikTok video about this person or that black person, or the other one. It's time you could actually be spending on getting people out to vote or writing out messages encouraging people to vote. Oh, I didn't realize. (laughs) You realized, all right. You realized. You realized that voting matters. You realized that. 
And the thing is, is that we are being seduced away from voting. It's the same trick done in a different way. Next minute, they'll be saying, oh, no, we can't bother to vote because what's the point? We're going to lose anyway. And that's just not true. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. My whole point, dear listener, is that we need a mindset that says we have to start educating each other on voting. We have to register people to vote. We have to educate them on how to register. That is what we need, dear listener. Not this bullcrap. It really means very little at the minute. It truly does. And so now, dear listener, I think it's very important to be mindful, to be careful, to be compassionate, but to also educate people about voting. Voting is very, very important. And do not let people do this reverse Jedi mind trick on you and convince you to somehow not vote. Because voting is welcomed. It's truly welcomed. It really is. And by the way, I just want to say to the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, well done today. You did a good job considering everything that happened. Everything. I do want to take this one last opportunity, dear listener, because I'll talk about voting more concretely coming up in the next few days on the Politocrat Daily Podcast. But I want to take one moment to talk about, of course, Lance Reddick. He passed away on Friday and was only 60, 60 years old, very young, very young. I just talked about how young. Um... I just talked about how young someone was. Their name just escapes me at the minute. And Lance Reddick was young, 60. 60, very young. And, you know, he was, he had these kinds of things in the, um, you know, um, I just can't even know what I'm trying to say here now. I'm just, Lance Reddick was a good person. Let me just start with that. He was known for his roles on The Wire and on Bosch and on numerous other TV shows and movies and approachable person, serious about what he was about um, and a cool cat, cool character. It's just unfortunate that he's no longer around. And um, yeah, who knows? It, it's just a very sad thing. Dying of natural causes. Um, Lance Reddick on Friday night um, very sad indeed. He was only 60 years of age. And he will be sorely missed. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It doesn't happen like we think it does. No one rolls the tanks. No armies meet in pitched battle. It happens quietly, little by little. And because so many think it can't happen, it does happen. 
little by little, the rules change. It doesn't seem shocking or sudden. And that's the point. Fewer places to vote, longer lines. Don't worry, they say. We're just improving the system. They hope we won't notice the rules are changing because they lost the last election. They hope we just won't care enough to stop them. They believe they can take America away from us, and we won't even notice. We know who they are. We know what they want. The question is, who are we? Do we let them get away with it, or do we fight? Democracy is on the ballot. Vote while your vote still counts. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising.